Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, let's talk about what's going on in currency markets right now with Douglas Borthwick. He is Managing Director, Head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company. Doug Borthwick, always a pleasure. Uh, dollar, Euro, 107. The Federal Reserve raises rates, but the dollar weakens. Tell us. I think that the Federal Reserve raising rates was priced in pretty much over the last uh, three or four weeks. And so there's an expectation that was already there. What people are really looking at is the statement uh, and the comments that came out from the Fed. And I think they were notable in that people realized that the Fed raised rates even though growth is still not where it should be. And so there's an expectation that rather than having more rate rises going forward, there may be less. I think on top of that, though, you've got this overall layering that comes from the Trump administration where they're out there talking about how they want a weaker dollar. And I think that uh, what you're seeing this week is you've seen the Secretary of State go out to Asia, talk to them. And since he's been out there, you've seen dollar yen start to come off considerably. You've seen uh, in Europe, you've seen the German uh, deputy finance minister talk about how a higher euro isn't that bad. They'd like to see higher rates in Europe. And so there's a little bit of a change here in terms of both interest rates, but also where people think currency should be. Uh, certainly, well, the Fed raised rates by 25 basis points, but now Europe's talking about maybe ending their QE and raising their rates as well. So that cancels some of the effect. But also, if the Fed, if the uh, U.S. administration was to look for a weaker dollar, they'd be looking for it against the currencies that they have obviously the largest deficits against. You've seen dollar Mexico come down considerably. You've seen uh, dollar yen come off, and you're also seeing the euro start to rally. And our belief is that you're going to see at these, this G20 meeting this weekend that there's going to be considerable discussion about currencies pressed forward by the new uh, Treasury Secretary, and that's going to uh, cause some uh, movement in that they're going to be no longer um, approving countries going out there and weakening their currency for the for the pure uh, sense of uh, to get more trade. If that happens, you'll see dollar yen come off. You'd expect to see the euro go bid. You'd expect to see dollar Mexico go lower. And I think that what they're doing is they're setting the table for a Plaza Accord 2.0, perhaps at Mar-a-Lago next week, uh, sorry, next uh, month when the Chinese premier is coming over. Uh, Doug, I, I want to parse through some of the things you were saying, because you made a lot of fascinating points. Number one, uh, perhaps the Fed is taking a backseat to uh, the policies of President Trump, the fact that Rex Tillerson has been going around and meeting with uh, foreign officials. We are looking at the yen strengthened against the dollar. Uh, the pound is strengthening a, a lot against the dollar. And I'm wondering, I mean, pound is, is not probably the target here, but uh, in Asia, how exactly would conversations with Rex Tillerson and some of the leaders of those countries directly and immediately trickle out into currency movements? Well, I think it's a quid pro quo in that, you know, when the Trump administration came in, they, they struck a very hard line. They said, you know, why should we be out there policing your waters? And since then, they've managed to, to clock it back somewhat. But I think that by having that fear out there allows them some negotiating room, which is something that President Trump obviously likes. By negotiating room, you say to them, look, we don't want you to stop intervening in your currency markets. In return, we'll end up being your policeman and we'll continue to, to pay for our bases out there and to look after you and protect you from North Korea, for example. And so I think that there is there's a direct correlation there between you know, us, us essentially using the big stick in one hand, but then speaking softly in, in the other. The softly speaking is, is right now in the currency markets, when the big uh, swift hand is us sending out uh, carriers out to that region. 
Douglas, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about Italy and the uh, sort of contradiction between how uh, Italians seem to view using the euro and perhaps the French or other uh, members of the European Union, and maybe just put it in the context of the Dutch elections. Oh, I think that everyone uses, for, for someone like Italy, that's more in the fringe in terms of normally if they didn't have the euro, they'd have much, much higher interest rates than they do right now. I think France is closer to the center and closer to where Germany is, and that the interest rates would be higher, but maybe not quite as low as they are right now. But certainly all countries in Europe benefit from being part of the euro because they get that Germany part, which allows them to have much, much lower rates. But now that can be constrictive at times as well, which the UK, certainly, though not part of the euro, is noting it as part of the EU, in that it means you give up a lot of sovereignty. Now, I think that the Italians would probably rather a little bit more sovereignty these days. If they want to get the industry going, they'd probably rather a much weaker currency so they could sort of rev up their um, their, their their economies. But you also have, you know, lots of different sects coming out there or, or, or facts or, or your positions are, are um, in each of the markets that are moving towards more of a nationalist state. They look at what Trump's done in the United States, and they think maybe this is our turn. You know, they look at the U.K. leaving the EU, and they think maybe this is our turn. They point to immigration. They say maybe this is our turn. But then you get the election you know, last night, and obviously, and it came out, and maybe you know, that the right-wing side didn't get in quite as many votes as they expected to. And so it's seen as a little bit of a fizzle, which obviously helps the euro to rally by its 30 pips uh, since that, that announcement came out. So and then there's, a lot of, there's a lot of different things. You know, Scotland also is, is part of this whole discussion. Scotland then turns around and says, well, we'd like to leave uh, the U.K., but at the same time we'd like to be part of the EU. Well, that's not going to be allowed by a lot of countries in, in Europe because they don't want different areas within their countries to splinter out and say we want to do the same thing. Uh, real quick, 30 seconds, Doug. Out of all of this uncertainty, what's the one currency that you think is going to move the most in the next six months? I think that everyone believes the Chinese currency is going to weaken. I think it's going to strengthen considerably. I think it's going to strengthen considerably because I think you're going to see the euro move higher, dollar yen move a lot lower. I think that on the back of that, because the Chinese currency is based upon a basket, you're going to see the Chinese currency strengthen, especially given that there's a lot of positioning out there right now that has short uh, China as opposed to long China. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Doug Borthwick with a contrarian call for a strengthening uh, Chinese currency. He's managing director and head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company. Uh, and we're looking at a dollar that is weakening against most other currencies uh, from Asia to Europe after the Federal Reserve spoke and as the U.S. goes out and tries to sort of change the conversation with respect to currency manipulation. The ticker for the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, U.S. issuers of high-yield retail bonds is really apropos. It's HURT, H-U-R-T. And it works very well because these bonds have been in a world of hurt so far this year. They are the worst performing bonds in the high-yield bond market. And I want to bring in someone uh, who knows a lot more about this, Jenna Gianelli. She is a high-yield analyst and also focuses on retail and gaming at Citigroup. And she joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Jenna, we're so glad you could be here. And I want to start with the idea... uh, that we've seen all of these losses, we've seen uh, mounting bankruptcies and the expectation of more. Where are we in this cycle? How much more pain uh, are we going to see in retailers? 
Hi, uh, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me in today. Um, happy to be here. You know, I, I think that's you know a great question, and I would say that although there are a lot of investors out there that are thinking this might be the opportunity and the time to jump in, um, I do still think that there is more pain to be had. I mean, we remain underweight the sector, um, and I think that when you look at a lot of the issues that investors are concerned about right now, um, especially for some of these larger LBO candidates about potential for you know moving assets, looking at loose covenants. Um, you know, more macro issues like border adjustment taxes, a rising cost environment, um, and really some of the bigger secular issues that we're facing, like increasing online print penetration, changing consumer preferences. Um, There's a whole host of things that our investors, you know, need to be worried about. It's coming at them from every angle. So I think we're still going to continue to see these play out in 2017. Well, and some of the LBO uh, companies that you're talking about, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, Toys R Us, Claire's, Gymboree, many more. Uh, How many of these do you expect to go bankrupt? Corrupt. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, look, the reality is a lot of them don't actually have liquidity issues as it stands right now. Um, you know, when you think about Neiman, um, you know, even Eclairs has some time left. Gymboree, you know, could be a 2017 event, but they do still have liquidity and, you know, a lot of the maturity runway for at least the next one to two years. Um, so I think we'll see restructuring. I mean, a lot of them you still have, you look at the sponsors, they haven't taken a lot of money out of these LBOs, right? So they're going to do everything that they can to kind of kick the can down the road, do some sort of an exchange with the bondholders to really do everything they possibly can to avoid bankruptcy and preserve their equity cushion. So I don't think we're actually going to see a ton for some of these bigger names in 2017, maybe down the road, um, but we have some time. Wait, but so if that's the case, they're basically going to squeeze everything out of everywhere but the equity holders, which means the bondholders. Won't this be potentially really bad for all of the debt owners uh, in these companies? That's the fear. That is the fear. And that has been, you know, I'd say the one of the big topics so far year to date is, you know, covenants, covenants, covenants. Um, everyone, I think, it, you know, it started with Claire's last summer. I mean, and and then J. Crew um, with, a, with um, you know, the moving of uh, IP assets. Everyone's exploring it now as a possibility for all these companies. Um, you know, Neiman Marcus looking at their covenants and saying, what assets could they move? They just you know, announced the other day that they are doing something of this nature, moving assets into an unrestricted subsidiary for the purpose of, of dealing with bondholders. So um, we're seeing loans, especially in retail, you know, under some pressure. Uh, and, and there's a concern that, look, there in, in these documents, there are, um, I don't want to say not loopholes, but certainly flexibility to, um, you know, to, uh, to move assets out to the detriment of the creditors. So we're seeing that in levels. And it's one of the biggest concerns on investors' mind right now. Is the supply available for the kind of investor that you are dealing with? Because, you know, supply begets demand in many cases. Uh, in terms of, yes. I mean, I think, look, generally, um, you know, the supply of, of bonds out there, I mean, we've definitely seen more sellers than buyers in, in retail, um, especially most real money accounts. When you think about it, more traditional investors versus hedge funds, uh, traditional guys have been um, largely underweight for most of 2016 and then even into 2017. We've had a lot of hedge funds and more distressed players, I'd say hovering, but not quite stepping in yet. Right, no one pulling well, the trigger. But hold on a second. No one pulling the trigger, exactly. No, no, one, no one pulling the trigger trigger, but some are increasingly pulling the trigger on the opposite bet. I mean, you were talking, Jenna, about how it's a very common discussion about how much pain has been in the retailers. And there was a story on the Bloomberg uh, just a few days ago about how the big short now is in commercial mortgage-backed securities that are tied to uh, retail properties. Also, we're seeing short interest on retail REITs rise to the highest level uh, in more than two years. 
Is now the time, is this the big short? Is now the time to uh, short sell this stuff? Well, you know, I think it's the first time that we've ever ha- actually heard any commentary from the retailers um, where they're saying they're starting to see rent relief, right? We've been, everyone's been asking about this trade probably for the last two or three years. How could the REITs be doing so well and the retailers be doing so poorly? It doesn't make any sense. And for the first time, we're hearing the retailers say, look, we are starting to get some relief. We're, we're starting to see more favorable clauses when we are extending uh, their leases. But that being said, um, you know, the average lease life, you know, you're still looking at five to 10 years for a lot of these guys. And so it's going to be measured in terms of the timing of the closures. It's going to be more concentrated in the lower end malls. When you think about the dispersion of A, B, and C malls, the C malls are really, they're a third of the malls in this country, right? And so it's going to definitely be more concentrated towards those. When you think about the closures that we're going to be seeing at Macy's and JCPenney, that's where these, you know, the anchor stores are going to be concentrated. But again, it's going to take time to play out. Um, And, you know, I don't want to say it's a crowded trade. But um, it's certainly been a popular one and one that, you know, I think a lot of investors have tried to express a view in. You don't have to say it's a popular. (laughs) It's not crowded. It's just popular. popular. Uh, But Jenna, just to be clear, so C malls are the ones that are sort of lower tier and lower end and A are the sort of more luxury and B is in the middle. Exactly. I think the perception is that traffic has been um, just weak across the board. But when you look at the dispersion, um, A malls have really held up pretty well, I would say. I mean, occupancy rates are still very strong. Um, You know, the traffic to those malls is still reasonable, maybe flat to down low single digit. It's definitely been more concentrated in the lower end where you're seeing, um, you know, uh, occupancies decline and um, the traffic, you know, um, you know, you know, weaker. We've, we've heard from a few different retailers that when you think about the dispersion of comps, um, it, it could be anywhere from two to three percentage points for an A versus B versus C mall. So if you're in A mall, you're down two, you're down four in your B mall and you're, you know, you're down six in your C mall. Just, I mean, it's not a perfect rule of thumb, but we've heard to that you know that degree for different retailers which is why you're seeing such negative comps for a lot of these guys thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us we look forward to having you again in the future jenna sure. gianelli is the high yield analyst for retail and gaming from citigroup thank you very much Bank of England today held its benchmark interest rate steady, but signaled that an increase may not be far off. Indeed, one official dissenting in favor of higher borrowing costs and others saying that it might not be long before they do the same. Here to tell us more about the decision and also a look at European politics and the economy is Jamie Murray. He is chief European Middle East and Africa economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us from our London studio. Jamie, thanks very much for being with us. Tell us about the Bank of England rate decision. Well, I I think uh, the markets have probably correctly interpreted it as more hawkish than previous statements, and it took most people by surprise. Uh, One thing I would say is that this may not last that long because the the member that's uh, elected to lift rates is only going to be on the Monetary Policy Committee until June before she is replaced. And we expect... Kristen Forbes. That's right, yes. So we expect that... Uh, one, we don't know who's going to replace her. It could be, could be anyone. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind is that the, the Bank of England is making this contingent on what happens to the data. Now, so far, the data has surprised. On the upside, growth has been stronger. Inflation has been roughly where most people expected it to be, given what, what's happened to sterling. Um, now, if that continues, then yes, we could be in for an earlier rate hike. But... 
our view is that the economy, or at least the data, will begin to sour a little bit. GDP growth will slow as that exchange rate effect starts to squeeze real incomes and, uh, and lift inflation. Well, Jamie, uh, when you talk about the bond market and how it responded, I mean, two-year yields in the UK uh, more than doubled in response to the Bank of England's decision um, to, to not do anything, but sort of the hawkish tone. And Paul Dobson, uh, Bloomberg team leader here, noted on the Markets Live blog uh, that the smoking gun from the BOE minutes that made the market sit up and pay attention was, with inflation rising sharply and only mixed evidence on slowing activity domestically, some members noted that would take relatively little further upside news on the prospects for activity of, or inflation for them to consider that a more immediate reduction in policy support might be warranted. In other words, uh, they would be more willing to go ahead and hike rates faster with just a little bit more news that would, uh, that would, that would edify the sense of, of, of inflation rising. Yeah, so I, I completely agree with Paul's assessment there. The, the, the thing is that we, I'm not expecting the data to show that sort of improvement. The, uh, the wages data came in remarkably weak, uh, just this week, um, the, uh, and despite the fact that unemployment is falling to very low levels. So there's no evidence whatsoever that domestically generated inflation is rising, and that's what the Bank of England needs to be looking at. Well, if that's what they need to be looking at, I wonder if you could provide a little bit of context for Brexit, the ongoing negotiations, and then dive into Dutch politics for us. Well, where we're up to with Brexit is that uh, that's the, the Article 50 is likely to be triggered towards the end of this month. It's been delayed slightly by some adjustments to, to the bill going through the House of Lords. Uh, and this means that uh, Britain will be on an official exit path from the EU and it will have two years from the end of this March uh, to, to reach an agreement with the rest of the EU. If it doesn't, then the all likelihood Britain will default to sort of World Trade Organization rules, which would mark a very sharp increase in tariffs on a lot of goods being bought and uh, sold between us and the uh, UK and the EU. So that's where we're up to with Brexit. Uh, my feeling is that I think it's most people's feeling is that the negotiations are going to be incredibly challenging. There's not a lot of uh, uh, there's not a lot of um, things going for Britain in this respect. Goodwill? Uh, Could we say not a lot of goodwill between European uh, negotiators? That's that's exactly the word uh, that escapes me a couple of moments ago. So uh, yes, (laughs) there is not much goodwill. Um, So my uh, my feeling is that uh, the rest of the EU has no incentive to to show goodwill to Britain, because the more it does that, the, the lower the hurdle for other countries to leave. Is it encouraging to you uh, the outcome of the Dutch elections, the fact that uh, the liberal candidate won and the sort of populist anti-Islam candidate uh, was pushed aside? Does this sort of give people a stronger feeling of less political risk right now in European markets? I think in markets it, it probably is having that effect. I'm not sure whether that's the right interpretation of it, though. Uh, the The Dutch election was, was quite unique in that uh, had... Uh, had the extremist party won, the, uh, the, they had no chance of governing, really. Um, that is not the case so much in other places in, in the Eurozone. Now, what I would say is that each of these countries is remarkably different, and it's very easy to lump them all together. So it's easy to imagine this tri- the typical distinction is core versus periphery. So you have the Netherlands, France, and Germany in one group, and then you have uh, the Italy, the, the Spains, the Greeces in the other. Now, Actually, there's significant differences even within those categories. So in, let's take in, in the Netherlands. So in the Netherlands, only 5% of the, 
of under 35s voted for the extremist party. In France, however, one third look like they're going to vote for Le Pen. Now, this is this is a real difference in uh, in in not in demographic makeup, but in among those groups, who is voting? There, it's completely upside down for well, between France and the Netherlands. Jamie, does it get you frustrated when you hear people like us in the United States talk about Europe and it's like, oh, the populist wave going through Europe and all of these elections and sort of lumping them together? Um, is it is it just, uh, or you know, in Europe, are market players really making the distinctions that you're talking about, or even in Europe, is this sort of the, uh, they're a lumping together kind of uh, that might lead to unwarranted conclusions? Well, I, th- I think it's no no worse than how we'd um, we describe the U.S. over here. Um, so I, I think the there is a tendency to lump uh, these economies together and treat their politics as the same. And the one distinction which I think is probably the most important thing for uh, a U.S. audience to recognise is that the euro is remarkably popular across most of the eurozone, uh, including France. Where it isn't popular, however, is Italy. And that really singles it out. And that's, so if you really want a place to look, you think if you're worried about risk to the Eurozone, Italy is, is that place. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Jamie Murray, Chief EMEA Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Day after a Fed rate hike, and you can't find much concern in riskier assets. You've got stocks gaining, you've got junk bonds gaining, uh, and there was a story on the terminal that Credit Suisse and UBS analysts are telling their wealthy clients it's not too late to buy equities. Well, we're going to talk with somebody to find out uh, whether he agrees. Hugh Johnson, chairman and chief investment officer at Hugh Johnson Advisors, which oversees about $1.2 billion. And he speaks with us now from Albany, New York. Hugh, uh, do you agree? Are you telling your clients to don't worry, go ahead, buy stocks? It's not too late. Uh, From from one point of view, Lisa, yes, uh, I think that's a good idea. You have to have some stocks in your portfolio. The simple reason for that is that when asked the question, which I think is the the key question now, is are we at or even near the end of the current stock market economic interest rate cycle? The answer to that, based on the performance of the markets and the performance of important economic variables is clearly no. So you need to have a a meaningful allocation to equities. That's the first part of the equation. The second part of the equation is what about valuation or current valuation? And if you were to ask me, and everybody answers the question differently, if you were to ask me, are we uh, undervalued, fairly valued, or overvalued, I'd say we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. You know, we've had a big run since the election, and so common sense alone says that it might be a little bit pricier overvalued. And I would say that the upside potential between right now and the end of 2018 is about 1% at the best. And so the most important thing is, yes, meaningful allocation to stocks, but if you're going to add to your portfolio the equities in your portfolio, wait for a good entry point. This is not a good entry point. You need a lower level uh, to be uh, buying stocks. That's in my view. Hugh Johnson, perhaps you know an investor that would like to take some profits. What would you recommend they sell? Uh, That's a really great question because I get that question almost every day. 
there are folks that obviously feel very uncomfortable with the kind of move we've seen up in stock prices. Stop, let me the stop place, you right there. Hugh, I don't mean that they have to be uncomfortable. They can even be gratified and say maybe they just want to sell half a position. But I'm wondering what would you sell if you just want to – Yeah, you, you, yeah I'll be honest with you. The, 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 the three sectors which have had the big move uh, since the election, and of course they're right at the top of the list are uh, the financials. Uh, the second uh, second two that I would mention is, first of all, technology, which has had a big move to the upside. And then I would take a very hard look at um, the healthcare stocks because there's a lot of fundamental problems there. Also, some industrials that have had a big move to the upside. The real issue is, is if you've had a big move up in some of the stocks in your portfolio, particularly the financials, uh, you might want to take, and it's a great question, you might want to take uh, some of that position, shall we say, off the table or sell it. Well, Hugh, I just want to give you the credit where credit is due because I remember back in August of uh, last year, you were pounding the table on financial stocks when no one else was really going out on a limb like that. Yeah, that was probably as good a guess as any. Uh, I didn't expect, obviously, that uh, Trump would win the election. I didn't. Uh, I, I thought at the time, but I really thought after the election of Trump that, of course, with deregulation, with Dodd Frank maybe being under uh, under the gun, uh, obviously with the uh, a better outlook for the economy based on the so-called Trump bump or the Trump uh, stimulus plan, that we might be talking about higher interest rates. We're talking about higher interest rates would accrue to the benefit of obviously the uh, the uh, profits of, of the commercial banking part of uh, the financial sector. So, you know, um, yeah, it looked good in August, uh, and it looked particularly good when Trump got elected. But the move up in the fourth quarter of 20 percent in one sector alone, uh, that's that's quite a bit. And then there again, common sense says you might want to take some off the table. Okay, so Hugh, let's say somebody does sell some of their financial holdings. Uh, they sell around the edges to, to get prepared for perhaps a better entry point. What should they do with the proceeds from those sales? Should they keep it in cash? Should they go into bonds? Well, you know, uh, Lisa, I, I, as I say, I think I'm worried or concerned about valuation. So when I'm concerned about valuation, which would be one of the reasons why I would sell some financials, maybe technology, industrials, maybe some healthcare stocks, I might go into cash for the time being and, again, look for a better entry point. If someone were to press me and ask me, what's a good entry point, I would say, look, it's got to be 5% below uh, current levels, because unless we go down 5% from current levels, and even a little bit more, um, I, you know, in my judgment, the upside potential between uh, the current level uh, and, and the end of 2018 would certainly not be that uh, attractive. So just from a, a big picture portfolio management point of view, you've got a, bit, uh, a sharp decline in stock prices before I would use that cash. Cash is not a bad thing to have right now. I'm not bearish by a long shot, but I'm just saying from a timing point of view, valuation point of view, I have my concerns. Well, Hugh, um, how much in your ideal portfolio how much would be in cash right now compared with, say, at the end of last year? 
Yeah, the, the, what we we've, we're pretty much we've been pretty bullish, and so if a if a client said to us, "Look, I have got a target for equities and fixed income of fifty, fifty, fifty percent in equities," I'll let you folks go to sixty five percent of the portfolio in equities when you think conditions or times are good, and be down at thirty five percent when you think times are bad. Right now, and quite frankly, the end of last year, we've been at sixty percent, and that's where we're going to stay, but. Um, as far as adding to positions, we're not going to change that 60%. Adding to positions, we'd wait for that decline uh, in stock prices before we would add to positions. If somebody said to me, if somebody said to me, look, I'm really concerned about the current stock market, I would ask them the question, look, you've got a 50% target with a little bit of leeway both sides. Maybe what you want to do is to reduce that target from 50% down to 40% or to what we would call a sleep-at-night level. Uh, that would be the uh, decision of the, of the client. But right now we have a over 50% allocation to equities, and that's based on the fact that we think equities are the place to be for the time being. Thanks very much for joining us. Hugh Johnson, as always, he is the chairman and the chief investment officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors, uh, joining us from Albany, New York, where he helps to manage over $1.2 billion of customer assets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.